0: Late in the afternoon on February 17, 1983, Mary Gillespie, having completed her afternoon shift, sits alone in the driver's seat of the school bus parked in front of her home on Brookmiller Road. Normally, having dropped off her last student, her bus route and work would be completed. Mary would already be inside of her home getting snacks, helping with homework, starting dinner. The February winter sun is fading fast. It's cold and windy and there's snow on the ground, but Mary is preoccupied. She stays in the cold, empty school bus, trying to wrestle open a strange package sitting in her lap. The package is an odd jumble, like a child's messy arts and crafts project with styrofoam and twine attached to it. Even though she hasn't seen it before, it feels familiar to Mary. There is an uneven cardboard sign that bears the same blocky lettering and vile messaging like so many other signs That Mary Gillespie has had to contend with over the past six years. What is different this time? Glued behind the sign, there's a small box painted black and sealed up tight. Sensing something inside, maybe some clue or evidence that would tell her who's been harassing her and her family sitting in the cold, Mary finally forces the box open. Resting on her lap, carefully nested inside the little black box, deliberately crafted in an upright position, is a gun, aimed at the opener, aimed at her. Mary's very first thought when she saw the gun was whoever the person was. They certainly wouldn't go through the extent of putting a real weapon in there just to scare her. It was probably just a starter pistol like the kind used at track meets, one that looked real enough to fool you when you saw it, but it really wasn't real. Mary Gillespie would soon learn that that gun was real and it was loaded. Whoever put that gun in that little black box secured to a sign she would be sure to see and react to, they didn't do it just to scare her. They wanted her dead. Thank you for listening to the Whatever Remains podcast. I'm your host, Marie Mayhew. On this episode we look at the brief but critical series of events that starts when Mary Gillespie finds that gun on February 7th, 1983, ending just a few short days later when Paul Freshour, her brother-in-law, is arrested for attempted murder. Sergeant Richard L. Phillips was working the front desk that night at the Pickaway County Sheriff's Office when Mary came in with what she called a package for them to look at. Phillips remembers...
1: I opened the box up and saw it, that there was a gun in the box. At that time, I opened the door that leads into the back part of the office and summoned another sergeant who was in the office, Sergeant Huffman. He came into the front office and looked at the, well, looked at what we had.
0: Mary thought she could drop this latest missive off with the sheriff's office and be on her way home, thinking it wasn't even a real gun. The two sheriffs looked at the cardboard box sitting on the counter in front of them, and they immediately understood the threat that was nested inside of it.
1: After we noticed it was a gun, I figured that some danger might have come from somebody moving the box around, so we attempted to disarm it. I used a pencil and raised the back of the gun up out of the styrofoam cautiously, applying pressure on the hammer to keep it from coming forward. After I removed the gun from the styrofoam, I slid the twine out through the back of the hole. Once I got the gun out, I removed the clip. I found a live round in the clip, so I assumed that the gun was loaded. I pulled the side back down, and there was a round in the chamber.
0: The booby trap, the gun hidden in a black box, was the Circleville letter writer's lethal showstopper that represented years of bottled rage. Six years of a steady trickle of threatening letters and toxic signs slowly escalated into this definitive violent act a crude device meant to kill Mary Gillespie in almost the exact same spot as her husband, Ron, had died years earlier. While it may have taken the letter writer years to reach that point, that night in the sheriff's office after Mary Gillespie set the crudely made contraption in front of Detective Brown, things happened very quickly. Led by Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe, this rapid chain of events, from collecting evidence to speaking to witnesses, to running forensics and interviewing the prime suspect, the collective total of the sheriff's office investigation into the booby trap would last 19 days. That would be all the time it took for the gun in the booby trap to lead its way back to its supposed owner. How did this investigation track so quickly back to Paul Freshour and does what they found prove his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt? Or was there something more than just the physical evidence that would lead the sheriff's office to believe that he was their primary suspect? And how did Paul Freshour, a man who loved his extended family so much that he considered Paul Gillespie a brother, react to these allegations? In an upcoming episode, We'll be doing a deep dive into all the different forensics used in the investigation and presented at his trial, because there's a lot to unpack. For now, let's pick up with the investigation immediately following the night of February 7, 1983. Detective Brown gets a call from Tom Nichols at the BCI, who advises that they have been able to examine the gun in question and have been successful in being able to raise the serial number on the weapon.
1: February 10th, 1983. I contacted Jane at ATF in Columbus, Ohio for an immediate trace on the above firearm. She advised she would put this on a priority basis and hopefully would get some results within 48 hours. I received a call from Jane at ATF at 10.10 a.m. She received a trace on the firearm in this case and it revealed the following information. The gun was shipped to Bob Arrett Company, South Bend, Indiana in 1973 and from there to Red Bank Harbor, Westerville, Ohio. The gun was purchased on September 4, 1973 by Wesley Wells of Columbus, Ohio. Male, black, six feet four inches, 234 pounds, date of birth February 1st, 1927, born in Reynolds, Georgia. In checking through the computer, it was found Wesley Wells' social security number showed his address in Columbus, Ohio. He has three automobiles registered to him, and I ran a criminal history and found he had none. Following this information from ATF, Sheriff Radcliffe and this unit went to Wells' address in Columbus and contacted Mrs. Wells, who stated her husband had just left for work at Anheuser-Busch Company in Columbus. We told her why we were there, and she contacted her husband's place of work. He had not yet arrived, so she left word for him to call home when he got there. That was 2.55 p.m. At about 3.10 p.m., Mr. Wells returned the call to his home, and Sheriff Radcliffe talked to him the sheriff asked him about the gun and Wells advised he had sold it three to four months ago for $35 in cash to a coworker with the name of Paul Bosser, male, white, age approximately 40. Wells continued and stated that Mr. Bosser was standing next to him at that time. When the sheriff asked to speak directly to Paul Bosser, Wells said he had left and he could not talk with him at that time. Soon after this call with Wesley Wells, we left the Wells household and were traveling southbound on I-71. While en route, we received a call from HQ advising that Mr. Wells had called and wanted Sheriff Radcliffe to call him back immediately. Sheriff Radcliffe called Mr. Wells, who had left work and returned home. Wells said the sheriff had made him very nervous and wanted to know what was going on. After Sheriff Radcliffe explained the matter to him, Wells stated he had sold the gun to Paul Freshour of Grove City, Ohio. Freshour had told him that his wife was being harassed and they wanted it for protection. He stated Mr. Freshour was his supervisor at Anheuser-Busch.
0: Three days after Mary brings the booby trap with the gun into the sheriff's office, authorities have evidence tying it back to Paul Freshour. During the trial, Wesley Wells himself testifies that he was a lab technician for 14 years at Anheuser-Busch and Paul Freshour was his immediate supervisor. He sold Freshour the gun before Christmas in 1982. Because Paul said something about his children being harassed and he needed some kind of protection. He worked nights and he just wanted something around to keep people away from his family. After getting off the call with the sheriff, Wells immediately found Paul and asked what had happened to the gun. Wells then said that Paul acted like he was nervous and said that he'd lost it and then walked hurriedly away. In later days, Hour asked Wells repeatedly if he had heard anything from Sheriff Radcliffe. Under oath, Wells said that he did not tell Paul Freshour that the gun the sheriff was questioning him about was involved in a crime, but he was certain that Paul knew that the sheriff had found the gun. So from very early on, Paul Freshhour knows that the sheriff's office has evidence that connects him in some respect to a crime. Normally, this type of information would not be disclosed to a person of interest.
1: February 17, 1983 Sheriff Radcliffe and this unit went to Anheuser-Busch Incorporated and talked with Vincent Vaccaro and David Wilson, managers of industrial relations at the company in Columbus, Ohio, regarding Paul Freshour, and advised them on the details of this investigation. They indicated he had been employed with the company since January 1973 and had an excellent work record, and they have had no trouble with him at the plant. Freshhour is working days at this particular time as a supervisor in the lab, and will be working days next week, the week of February 21, 1983. They confirmed that Paul Freshhour did have access to the Xerox machine, chalk, and to many typewriters. They also said Mr. Freshour has access to plywood. Indications were that if we wanted the personnel files of Paul Freshhour or any other files, that they could be subpoenaed from the court.
0: 10 days later, the sheriff's office is going after more evidence like the physical components that made up the rest of the booby trap, hypothetically found at Fresh Hour's job, Anheuser-Busch. They also want access to his work files to see copies of his handwriting and to find records to see if he was actually at work on February 7th.
1: February 25th, 1983, at approximately 3.43 p.m. Sheriff Radcliffe and this unit decided to approach Mr. Freshour. We staked out the home in Grove City, Ohio, and observed Mr. Freshour come home driving his red bobcat. He was alone, wearing a light blue shirt, dark blue pants, black shoes. He got out of his auto and went into the home through the back. We approached, and Sheriff Radcliffe identified himself. Paul Freshour shook hands with Sheriff Radcliffe and said he knew who he was. He then wanted to know if something was wrong with his son, Mark.
0: 15 days after Paul Freshour learned that the sheriff's office identified the gun as his, they finally show up at his door. Freshour knows that the sheriff's office knows the gun is his. But instead of mentioning this, the first thing that Paul asks the sheriff about isn't the gun. It's about his oldest child, his son,
1: Mark. Sheriff Radcliffe advised no and said that we were making an investigation and that there were some items at the sheriff's department that he would like Mr. Freshour to look at and wanted to know if he would be willing to come to the sheriff's department. Mr. Freshour agreed. Mr. Freshour followed us in his red bobcat to the Pickaway County Sheriff's Office at 425 p.m. When he arrived, Freshour was advised of his rights. He signed the rights form with no hesitation and did not indicate or make any mention of wanting an attorney. Mr. Freshour talked to us for some time and readily admitted that he would take a polygraph test to get the matter straightened out. The BCI was contacted at approximately 4.40 p.m. and confirmed that they would stand by to administer the test.
0: A big part of the story of the Circleville letter writer is Paul Freshour's demeanor during these events. Freshour is seemingly calm throughout and accommodating to the sheriff's requests. His behavior is even used as part of his defense in court. He was willing to go back he was willing to go back to the sheriff's office to answer their questions. He waives his rights and doesn't request an attorney. He agrees to a polygraph test. He allows the sheriff to search both his home and his car. All of these actions are of someone that does not appear to have anything to hide or have a guilty conscience.
1: While en route to the BCI in London, Ohio, a conversation was held between Sheriff Radcliffe and Paul Freshour about the investigation into the matter in question. Mr. Freshour was told by Sheriff Radcliffe that the gun had been traced without question back to him. Mr. Freshour said, quote, That's right. I bought the gun from Wesley Wells as he works at the plant, and I will take full responsibility for the gun, end quote. Freshour then said that someone had stolen it from the garage at his home. There was never anything mentioned at this time as to what type of charge or even the exact details of the offense we were investigating. Mr. Freshour then stated, quote, Why, that gun could have been involved in a murder, couldn't it, Dwight? End quote.
0: A recent report from the Department of Justice called Firearms Stolen During Household Burglaries and Other Property Crimes that over a five-year period from 2005 to 2007, 86% of burglaries involving a stolen firearm were reported to the police. While the majority of property crimes involving stolen firearms occurred in the Southern United States, homes with one white male as a head of household account for the majority of burglaries where a gun is stolen. The DOJ's study shows that Paul Freshour's claim that the gun was stolen fits within a good portion of the statistics. It is within reason that the gun could have been stolen from his home during a burglary. What doesn't fit is that the majority of Americans that have a gun taken from their home report that to the police. Freshour readily admits that he bought the gun from Wells, perhaps because he knows that the sheriff's office has evidence of him owning it for more than two weeks. Denying it was his probably was not a plausible course of action. But if the gun was stolen from his property, that opens up a whole other set of possibilities. People tend to report a stolen gun more often than a theft of other properties, reasonable considering what was stolen could be used in a crime. Now Ohio is one of only 11 states that has adopted laws requiring gun owners to report lost or stolen firearms to law enforcement. So why did Paul Freshour not report the theft?
1: Upon further questioning while at the BCI, Freshour admitted writing 30 to 40 of the letters himself, saying he had written them at his house when Mary Gillespie, Geraldine Clifton, Ronnie Clifton, Karen Freshhour, and Mark Freshour were present. He also said that these parties were aware that he had written the letters. He told us about his hiring a private investigator. After completing the handwriting samples, he was asked if we could search his car in his house. Freshour agreed, and at 11.40 p.m., he signed a permission to search form for his home at 3955 Chancellor Drive, Grove City, Ohio. And at 11.45 p.m., he signed a permission to search form for his 1980 Mercury Bobcat. Shortly after midnight, a search of the Paul Freshour home was made by Sheriff Radcliffe, Prosecutor Klein, and Detective Sergeant Brown while Mr. Freshour was present. Although Mr. Freshour had stated that there were five to six chalk boxes there, when asked to show us where the chalk boxes were kept, he could not do so as there were none present and none could be found. There were no hammers found in the house, which we thought might be found to match the nails which were submitted to BCI. There were some papers picked up which Mr. Freshour gave us on his own. On the way back to the Pickaway County Sheriff's Department, Paul Freshour stated he, quote, felt he knew who had taken the gun in question out of his garage, end quote and Sheriff Radcliffe immediately asked Mr. Freshour by whom. Mr. Freshour said at that time he, quote, wouldn't tell him, but that was all right, end quote.
0: While returning to the sheriff's office from BCI, Paul Freshour's story changes. The gun was stolen by someone he knows. He tells the sheriff, you go ahead, do your job. Do what you have to do. You go ahead and arrest me. Whatever you have to do, he is not going to tell them what happened. Freshour said that he had bought the gun from Wells as protection for his family, who were being harassed. He didn't tell any family members that he bought it, or that he had it hidden in the garage. Freshour only owned it for a couple of months, and then in January said it was stolen with some other items when he and his two daughters were vacationing in Florida. According to court testimony from Fresh Hour's acquaintance, Charles S. Spencer, he accompanied Fresh Hour to try and locate the stolen or missing gun on two different occasions prior to the date of the booby trap. Spencer testified that he frequented Fresh Hour's home quite often, and during one of these visits in early January, they discussed a set of speakers that were stolen from Spencer's apartment just the week prior. Unlike Fresh Hour, Spencer had reported his stolen belongings to the police. But now, with this situation, at Paul's home, Spencer said that he and Paul decided to go look for the stolen gun and other items themselves, without involving the authorities. Spencer figured that Freshour chose this course of action maybe because a relative or a close friend took the gun from his home. But Freshour never told him he had any idea who had the gun, like he had told the sheriff. Spencer himself said, well, if he knew who had the gun, he wouldn't have to go looking for it. On February 26th, Paul Freshour was booked into the Pickaway County Jail, charged with attempted aggravated murder involving a firearm. His bond was set at $50,000. Besides any of the other evidence, including a slew of anonymous letters, the gun itself is problematic. Within 24 hours, the sheriff's office immediately is able to link it to Freshour, the brother-in-law of the victim, Mary Gillespie. This gun that no one knows that he had vanished from his home from a place that no one knows where it was being kept while he was on vacation. He and Charles Spencer combed the neighborhood for the gun just days before it is found in the booby trap, making Spencer, an acquaintance, a pretty convenient witness. But Freshour never reported it lost or stolen. He asks about Mark and tells the sheriff he knows who took it, but doesn't want to say to anyone else during his search. And for the whole two weeks prior to his arrest, during all of his questioning, Freshour knows the sheriff's office knows it's his gun.
1: March 4, 1983. Sheriff Radcliffe testified before the January term of the Pickaway County Grand Jury against Paul L. Freshour in this case, and a true bill was returned on the charge of attempted murder. March 9, 1983. Paul Freshour appeared in Pickaway County Common Pleas Court for arraignment represented by Attorney William Boyland of Columbus, Ohio, who was in the law firm with Mr. J. Sanford. He entered a plea of not guilty and requested his bond be lowered. Judge Amare continued the bond at $50,000 cash. Freshour will remain in the custody of the Pickaway County Sheriff until the bond is posted. March 16, 1983 a bond hearing was held in Pickaway County Common Police Court, Judge William Amer presiding. Mr. J. Sanford of Columbus, Ohio, and Mr. Steve Goosler of Asheville, Ohio, were representing the defendant, Paul L. Freshour. Roger Klein, along with Sheriff Radcliffe and this unit, were representing the state of Ohio. Sheriff Radcliffe testified on behalf of the state to the fact that this had been an ongoing investigation for the past six to seven years, and to the facts leading up to the arrest of Mr. Freshour. The sheriff also testified about the BCI reports and three of the letters checked by the lab contained a white substance that was found to be arsenic. Judge Amer advised he would take the matter of the bond under advisement for a couple of days and the bond would remain as set for the present time.
0: At this point, Freshour is represented by Jay Sanford, the same lawyer that represented him in his divorce proceedings. He's also the employer of his sister, Millie Russell.
1: During the hearing when testimony was being taken regarding the amount of the bond, Mr. Freshour turned to the two rows of courtroom spectators and said in a low voice, quote, I don't want out, end quote. This unit also heard Freshour say this and told the court, On the return trip to the Pickaway County Jail, Mr. Freshour told me that I should not repeat everything that I heard as it made it bad for him.
0: We talked about Paul Freshour's open demeanor, but there are contradictions within his behavior. His seemingly off-handed remark to the sheriff about how his gun could have been involved in a murder, and this remark in the courtroom during the hearing, telling spectators that he wanted to stay in jail. While these remarks are a far cry from a confession of guilt, They are a recording, but not everything is exactly as it seems. After his bond was set at $50,000, Paul Freshour was remanded back to the Pickaway County Jail. Prior to his release, he wrote a series of letters to his defense attorney and family. This correspondence gives us a bit of a deeper look at Paul Freshour's demeanor at this time.
2: March 2nd, 1983. Skip, how's it going? Great down here. Man, there's some things going on down here that the ACLU wouldn't believe. Here's those letters I told you about Monday. They're numbered from 1 through 4. One is mine, and two is from that murderer I told you about. And one's from another inmate. I'll give you the matching numbers as well. Have them analyzed, and then let the sheriff have them. I don't care what it costs. If you need more of my writings, call my boss, Dennis Rotondo. Joe Rotondo, the lawyer's son, he called down here today. I'll set things up at work next week. Dennis has got some sample writings of mine that they can have, so we'll be even and fair. I know that Sue will be putting pressure on you, but the girls don't want to live with her after she walked out on them.
0: The well, letters that Paul Freshhour is referring to here appear to be an effort to engineer his own handwriting analysis to use in court, using samples from other inmates. It's not specified if this strategy was condoned by his lawyer, especially because it's doubtful that any of the findings would be admissible or even particularly helpful to Paul's case. While we don't have Skip Stanford's thoughts, Paul's focus on engaging other inmates to get their handwriting is clear.
2: Skip, here's some more letters. I see that Sue jumped right into the house. That really pisses me off. I have a friend, Tom Stevens, who used to teach college, so I'm going to have him. To contact one of his active professor friends and see if he can't get all of his students to make up one of these type of letters just for copying demonstration if that's legal for he owes me one i got him on at the brewery if it's legal i'd give him a copy and then the students would write them i'm just so damn tired i can't stand it would this be okay just let me know since sue's in the house you can bet that everyone knows everything i've got a feeling that i'm at a dead end I can hear her now. I bet she's saying it to the sheriff that I had it all planned out. I hate the thought of writing another letter, so I'll wait until I hear from you concerning Tom Stevens. He'll get it done, I promise.
0: It's questionable what in this plan would prove to a jury that Paul Freshour was innocent, especially since the only handwriting that will matter is his own, and that is only part of the prosecution's possible case against him. Also, Paul is angry that his ex-wife, Karen Sue, has moved into his home with his two daughters.
2: Skip, will we be able to get these inmates out for trial? They've been a lot of help. I have all their names and addresses. And here's some printing from the sheriff's department that looks familiar. I'll get these into letter form for you. saying or even thinking that anyone from here is doing anything. It's just that this type printing looks familiar. Ask Millie if she agrees, and then I get them put into letter form for analysis. We've even used printing from the cartons, so I've put them in this letter. And now I've got to get to sleep. See you next week with the number of letters. Good luck. Paul.
0: This letter marks a pronounced turn in Paul's communication with his lawyer and appears to be moving further from a defendable position. There's no way that a pickaway county court would let inmates in to testify for the defense about their own handwriting. Relying on inmates as witnesses is problematic, but using them in some capacity as handwriting experts is unsound.
2: Millie, two weeks ago, Big Chuck took me to two places where Ronnie might have gone to sell the things I had missing. The first house, left of the Miller Bar, in Johnson's garage. Billy said that Ronnie had tried to sell him a 12-inch chainsaw. I don't care about the tools or the saw, only the gun. I'll give you 500 bucks for any information. Dave Gillespie works out there, so maybe he can also find out. Tell Ronnie I won't be mad if he got drunk and sold it. I don't worry about the letters at all, but that was my gun. Get Chuck to take you out to that place and find out about it. Tell Skip I don't care what it costs, that I want a jury trial out of this county. Also, Millie, we must find out how much control the sheriff has over this judge. Find out if the sheriff's son was busted for drugs in the last 10 years. And if so, what happened and who the judge was? Give this to Skip for analysis. Paul March 4th, 1983 Skip My father-in-law used to tell me that his son was killed. And Skip, I believe that man. I used to think Dave was nuts. Dave always said his murder was covered up. I'd spend every dime I have now until I find out. Things like two men being seen at the accident, Dave finding bullets in his truck, and the truck being sold to a junkyard in only a few days? Dave was right now. I I see it. Dave used to come up to my house and talk to me about it. This hit me the other night when the sheriff said that Ronnie drank a lot. Ask his family about that, and even Sue, for I didn't know that. I still don't believe that the sheriff said, and I quote, Like my old dad used to say, everyone uses the back door sometimes in their lives. Skip. I've never heard anyone that I know down here ever say anything good about the sheriff. Inmates not included. Everyone else. I just wonder if there's any connection between the sheriff and the principal. For the principal had a strong motive. Have someone go to the Circle View newspaper and get clippings related to this for the last seven years. Get Miller from AAA if you want. Since my life's on the line, find out. Paul.
0: These letters one to his sister Millie the other to his attorney, read as increasingly paranoid and conspiratorial. Paul Freshour is no longer compliant and open. This could be explained by the fact that he is being held in jail awaiting trial. But Freshour does not ask his lawyer much about the case against him or talk about their strategy for exonerating him from these charges. One tangible point he does make is wanting to get the trial moved out of Pickaway County. Paul Freshour was not mistaken with this, especially with all the press about the case. But his reasoning for it veers into the extreme. Sheriff Radcliffe, Gordon Massey, authority figures overall are in league to indict him. They're corrupt, covering up for each other. but maybe the most telling thing in the series of letters that Freshour wrote from prison is his returning to the supposed murder of his brother-in-law, that Ron Gillespie's own father confided in him that it was murder, that only Paul knew and loved Ron Gillespie enough and would spend every dime he had to find out who killed him. Except Ron Gillespie was not murdered. There were no bullet holes in the truck, no indication or evidence that it was anything besides a fatal accident tragically caused by drunk driving. Freshour's dogged pursuit of a murder that never occurred years in the past shows that his grasp on reality, including his own legal situation, was strained at best. Shortly after his release from the Pickaway County Jail on Bond on March 30th, this. April 25th,
1: 1983. Pickaway County Sheriff's Office learned that Jay Sanford and Steven Goosler, attorneys for the defendant Paul Freshour, had filed an order with the Pickaway County Common Police Court stating that they are no longer the counsel for the defendant. March 26, 1983. It was learned on that Paul Freshour had been committed to the mental health ward at Riverside Hospital, 13th floor. A check was made and it was found that Paul Freshour had been admitted to the hospital. County prosecutor, Sheriff Radcliffe, and Judge Amir were advised of this event.
0: The events of these last two days in April seemed to leave Detective Brown and us with more questions than answers about the alleged letter writer. Less than a month after his release on bond, fresh hours attorneys, the same ones that he had been corresponding with while being held on bond in jail, stepped down from representing him. Why would they quit when their client is closing in on his trial date? set to begin in early July. The following day, Paul Fraschauer commits himself to a mental health ward in a Columbus hospital, but for what reason? Is the man who appeared so at ease and helpful with the sheriff's office throughout their investigation, and even his subsequent arrest, actually insane? Does his seeming obsession with inmates handwriting samples, muttering about staying in prison to a courtroom filled with people, And commitment to solve the death of his brother-in-law Ron Gillespie show us a man that's not capable of understanding his own actions? Or are Mary Gillespie, Wesley Wells, Charles Spencer, Ron Gillespie, Sheriff Radcliffe, Detective Brown, Skip Stanford, all just supporting characters in a story that Paul Freshour is writing, one that's been planned out, carefully crafted, a story whose author still gets to write the last chapter, and Still gets to have the last word. Thank you for listening to the Whatever Remains podcast. I'm your host, Marie Mayhew. On our next episode, the prosecution lays out their case for why Paul Freshour not only tried to kill Mary Gillespie, but is also the individual that's been terrorizing the town of Circleville with anonymous letters for years. Is what they present enough to convince you of his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt? Let's find out.
2: This town called Melis. Hey, yeah, yeah. This town called This town called.